God's grace in unveiling His glory in Christ Jesus. I want you, if you will, to turn to the hymn we sang just a moment ago, uh, And Can It Be? And I want you to look at the third stanza. And the reason for that, it points us back to the significance of the glory of God being seen in Christ. He is the fullness of the radiance of the glory of God. Catch that again. He's the fullness, the exact imprint of His nature. The fullness of the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. In other words, once we look upon Christ and we see His glory, then we will be overcome by the glory of God as if we are, and we are, in the presence of God. We will not stand in the presence of God and not recognize His glory. We saw that over and over again as we looked at the encounters that Moses and Israel had with God. They were overcome by His glory. And when we see the glory of God in Christ, we are overcome. And Charles Wesley wrote this, verse 3, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. In other words, long my imprisoned spirit lay, and I could not see the glory of God in Christ. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, the, 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 our sinful nature, is what he's speaking of. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. The prison that I was in that was dark and bleak and hopeless flamed with light. And my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose went forth and followed Thee. I was reminded this week as I gave consideration to those who have yet to see the glory of God in Christ that Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that those who fail to see the glory of God in Christ, their eyes have been blinded by the evil one so that the unveiling, he, he covers. It's like he puts his hands in front of their eyes. And they are not able to see the glory of God in Christ. And apart from seeing the glory of God in Christ, uh, we cannot know God. We will not know God. We will not love Him. We will not worship Him. Uh, we will not fall before Him in adoration. And yet today, uh, we have had the opportunity to be reminded of that. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to 1 Peter. As you're turning there, uh, I want us to take a few minutes this morning uh, to uh, intercede on behalf of uh, individuals here in our community who this week uh, will see evidence around them in as much as we reflect the glory of God in our lives, uh, that this is Holy Week, this is Passion Week, that we have seen the glory of God in Christ. We are looking ahead in great celebration to come again uh, and uphold what we just sang just a moment ago as we 
uh, as we concluded the song, uh, that uh, uh, he, has, he has risen, and because He has risen, we have life. Uh, we'll celebrate that this week. Uh, we will walk along this week looking at Scriptures pointing us to uh, the very fact that Christ died for specific things to take place in our life that enable us to have life, that free us, that rid us of chains, uh, that gives us victory over sin, that ensures the fact that we can also live. We'll look at text and then we'll gather Thursday uh, and we will be reminded again uh, as we move into those final hours giving consideration uh, to the suffering and death of Christ. Uh, and then we'll gather again uh, as we have today, uh, next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and we'll give attention to uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and what that means for us. I look forward to that time. I mention our community because there will be those who will go uh, unaware this week uh, unless we help make them aware in our countenance and in our speech. And I want us to pray uh, for us as a church as we reflect God's glory this week uh, and as we seek to uh, encourage others uh, this coming week. Two, uh, I want us to pray, uh, as you have already seen uh, through our realm messages, I want us to pray today as this is the second day of our season of prayer and fasting. Uh, I want us to pray today that that God would grant favor uh, to Cornerstone Baptist Church and College Acres uh, as they prepare even this week to meet corporately next Sunday. Uh, and in the course of that, that God would reveal to them through their discussions, through their time together in worship, uh, if in fact they are to be uh, one local body. And we want to pray for them as they work through that because they will vote on that uh, the following week. Uh, and then secondary to that, okay, and I mentioned this in our realm message, really secondary to that is how does that impact us? Uh, will that afford us an opportunity to assume that facility uh, and look ahead to a day when we may meet there? And I want to invite you, encourage you, uh, we're church family, so I'm, family to, fam, as family, we don't invite family. We just assume that they're going to be there. I'm going to assume that we're going to be together through the course of this month as we pray for that and want to encourage us even this morning uh, to give consideration to that. And third, to pray for Isaiah. Uh, you saw in our realm message uh, that we have committed to pray for him this month as he gives consideration as to whether he will leave Kamasi, uh, move to the north, and begin church plant effort in, in Wundu. Uh, communicated with him yesterday. As you know, he's been struggling physically. And uh, Matthew, I thought about you. He's had this last year and a half it's been a really difficult time for him. So he's praying about this even through the time that after he had a week up north, he came back home and he was very ill this week. Um, but... Uh, I, I, I believe that God uh, is in control of all of that <laughs> as He is in all of our challenges in the course of life. That will not necessarily mean that He can't go to the north. Uh, he may go in pain. Uh, he may go in physical suffering. Uh, or He may go completely whole and well. I don't know. 
Uh, but let's pray to the end that God would reveal to him if that is in fact what he has for him. Uh, one do has no church, never been a church in that village. There's been several attempts to plant a church in that village. Uh, they have, they have not, they, they, they've not lasted. They just could not get off the ground because of the uh, strong uh, Muslim influence there. And we want to pray for him uh, and pray for one do. So those three things. Uh, we have mentioned them prayerfully, and now let's pray. Father, uh, as we look ahead this week, uh, we uh, ask, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts to walk in a manner uh, that is worthy of the calling that we have and the life that we enjoy in the resurrection, and that our witness uh, would, uh, would reflect your glory, and that our countenance would reflect your glory, and that our attitudes would reflect your glory as we seek to point others to your glory in Christ. Uh, even as we give consideration to next week and our time together on Easter Sunday. Uh, Father, we lift Cornerstone uh, and College Acres before you and ask, Lord, that you would uh, grant them wisdom and that there would be a special grace coming from you as they work through this process, helping them to know if, in fact, this is what you would have for them. Uh, and if so, Father, that you would just help them to see that clearly and as they step out in faith that they would rest in you. And then, Father, uh, if that would mean that we would have an opportunity to assume their facility and that is your will for Oak Valley Church, uh, then we ask, Lord, that you would show them and show us and grant us favor. And, Father, we lift our brother Isaiah before you and ask, Father, that you would strengthen his body today. And Father, that you would uh, quicken his heart and his mind and that your spirit would fill him. And Father, if in fact uh, you would send him from Kamasi to Wundu to plant a church, uh, Father, make that clear to him. We lift him before you as our brother and partner in ministry. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to encourage you to continue to pray. This morning we'll begin a 16-week series in 1 Peter. Uh, so if you're one of those kind of people that you're curious about what date that series ends, it ends on July the 16th. You don't have to look it up. So we're here till uh, July the 16th. In the meantime, uh, we want to give consideration to this letter uh, that is written by uh, none other than the Apostle Peter. And we know this because... Uh, his introductory remark at the outset of his letter, Peter identifies himself, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter identifies himself and he even qualifies himself, though uh, not uh, by his own qualification, but by the qualification that Jesus Christ himself gave him. Uh, as you know, this last couple of weeks, Alina, Ann, and I uh, just returned from Ghana on Monday and had, uh, uh, by, by your gracious gifts, were able to be there and to serve. Uh, and we're grateful to have had the opportunity to serve there. I was reminded in our traveling how the name of this office, Apostle, uh, has been hijacked by uh, certain members of the Christian community. Uh, in one stream of the charismatic camp, it, it isn't uncommon to see 
the title apostle precede the name of a proclaimer of at least a certain message that I would argue is not the gospel, but, but it's marketed as such. Uh, the message is, is wrongly identified in my estimation as the title. And the reason for that, that the office of apostle is a very specific and special office. It makes a difference here. Because Peter could have said, uh, uh, Peter, uh, a follower of Jesus. Peter, uh, a missionary. Peter, a church planter. Peter, a fisherman. He could have said anything. But he said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It was an office that was established by Christ Himself. Not an office that was established in the context of the formation of the early church. We see that there were 12 original apostles. If we'll uh, turn over with me to Luke chapter 6, I believe is right. Maybe not. Somebody maybe can help me. Well, that's not too good getting started right off. And Well, speak up so I can hear you. Luke 12? 6.12. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. In these days, speaking of Jesus, He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night He continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them, chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Okay? So here's the setting. Uh, he had a group of disciples, a group of followers, a group of students, if you will. And they were with him. And then after prayer, he comes and he selects twelve of them that he designates and named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Why well, mention this? Well, in Acts we see that Judas, uh, after being exposed as a betrayer, uh, and after Jesus had been crucified, we see that he had taken his life. Uh, and in Acts, we see that the twelve now becomes eleven. And the apostles sensed that his place should be filled. And, and they looked out among the followers, at kind of as Jesus did in, in a way, maybe. And in the course of that, they selected two possible candidates, uh, Justice and Matthias. And they prayed for God's hand to guide their selection. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he replaced Judas Iscariot. And then in Acts 14, 14, we read where Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles. And there are several other places in the New Testament. The point is, the point is, is that uh, it's important to understand that Jesus gave his disciples certain apostolic authority, part of which included speaking for Him. He endowed them with power from the Holy Spirit to do certain miracles. It was a certain work that they did. 
uh, to bear witness and testimony to the world regarding the resurrected Christ. Uh, and once they were gone, those things ended. Those things ended. Now, why am I emphasizing this? It's because Peter's identity was established by Christ Himself and His authority to write and to instruct the church. That's what He's doing here. Instructing the church. It was directly related to His office. Now that doesn't mean that non-apostles didn't participate in writing in the New Testament. We know that they did. But the majority of the New Testament written by these men that Jesus has called out as apostles, He has given them the authority to speak for Him. And if they are speaking for Him under the power of the Holy Spirit, word given to them by the Spirit of God, then, then certainly it should be heard, should be listened to. And, and hopefully as we seek to do that, to be studied and understood and then carried out. Peter. Remember, this is the same Peter who was a simple, uneducated fisherman. Think about that. He was struck by the holiness of Christ when Jesus commissioned his boat as a pulpit. And then after preaching from it, instructed Peter to cast his nets into the sea. I remember how we would pull the same nets out on the beach in the fall of the year. And when you pull out a thousand yards of seine net and you catch two bucketfuls of fish and you get it all cleaned out and you clean everything out of the net and you shake it out and you get in the back of the boat and load it up and then somebody says, there's fish, you're wanting to make sure that there are enough fish to justify going back through all of that again. Peter had fished all night and caught no fish. You remember that in the song, don't you? He fished all night and they caught no fish. And then Jesus instructs him after this sermon to cast his net into the waters in the day, not in the night when they were accustomed to fishing, to cast it in the day. And Peter did what Jesus commanded and he caught the mother load. If you don't believe that, get a copy of the Jesus film and see how it was portrayed. He caught a lot of fish and it was in that encounter that God granted Peter to come to understand this is no mere man. No mere man. And he says, I have to get out of your sight. You've got to get out of my sight. We don't belong even in the same place. This is Peter who when asked who Jesus was, his response was profoundly direct. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son. You're the sent one. This is the same Peter who vowed to die with Jesus and yet fulfilled Jesus' own prophesied denial. And then he denied Christ. Not just once. Three times. All in the hearing of Jesus. All in a matter of just a few hours. And this is to Peter whom the Lord asked, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And this was the Peter who stood at Pentecost and boldly proclaimed Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. If you haven't read 1 Peter, you will before we work through this because we're going to read every word of it over the course of the next 16 weeks and some of it multiple times. 
This is what I found interesting. This was just an observation on my part. You would think that with all that Peter experienced with Christ in that three-year period of ministry, that Peter would be writing about stories and encounters that he had with Christ. You would kind of think that. Let me tell you about the Jesus that I, that I know. But that isn't what is impressed upon him to write about. But rather it is how does the resurrected Christ bear upon living in this life? Not about how many fish they caught. Not about the healings. Not about the feeding of the 5,000. And all of those are wonderful stories that we use in sharing the gospel. Things that we need to pay attention to. Good things. But that's not what Peter is drawn to. Is how is it that a believer can live in two incompatible worlds? Two incompatible worlds. And facing what seems to be two incompatible truths. What two worlds? Well, the heavenly realm in which we have been called and this world that we live in that is corrupted by sin. I don't know if you find tension in that or not. I do. I do. The heavenly realm in which we've been called and yet living in this world where children are gunned down in school. Where babies are abandoned. Where the truth is called a lie and a lie is called the truth. Where torturous despots rule. Where men are beaten down in the streets because of having a different skin color. Where religious groups seek to kill other religious groups in the name of God and peace. Where politicians will support military unrest in order to receive money from military and arms contracts. Where expecting mothers will drive to abortion clinics and end the life of their babies because their pregnancy is inconvenient and potentially stands in the way of their own ambition and goals. Where men want to be women and women want to be men. And some even think themselves to be cats and dogs and demand the right to be seen and acknowledged as such. Raise any flags, any tension. And what about the two incompatible truths? The one being the joyful life that is promised and that is supposed by those who profess Christ and the ongoing suffering that is faced in this life. Where in one day, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I confess that I have more than one day, many days, where in one day a believer will feel as though they are on top of the world and the joys of knowing Christ are rightfully unrefuted. And before day's end, the suffering and hardships of broken relationships interrupt the joys just recently experienced. Or the call comes that the job has been discontinued for apparently no reason, but the truth is your co-worker was struggling 
weighing between trying to figure out right and wrong, and you shared a relevant, a relevant biblical text and prayed for her, and thus there is no more job. Or you get a call from a family member inviting you to attend a gathering where he will enter into a homosexual union. Now the heaviness of the weight bears upon you as you consider, how do I say, I'm sorry, I can't attend. But I want you to know, I love you. And I care for you. Or, as is the case for some of you, maybe will come that you'll be taken away from your home and carted off to jail because you refuse to acknowledge that the male store clerk has a lady. Real? Every bit of it. We're living in two worlds, and then we have these ups and downs of the joys of our salvation, and then the hard, hard, hard times where it, it just seems like that these things are incompatible. And that's what Peter's writing about. Not about the fish that he caught, but about that. How does the resurrected Christ bear upon this life in this world? That's what Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, finds most pressing. I want you to listen to what Archbishop uh, Robert Layton had to say about 1 Peter. And then from that, uh, this will kind of be the conclusion of our introduction, and we're going to look at the text. This excellent epistle is a brief and yet very clear summary both of the consolations and instructions needful for the encouragement and direction of a Christian in his journey to heaven. You know, we sing about our journey to heaven today. You already, you've already gathered that. Well, that's, for, for the believer, that's where we're heading. That's where we're heading. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're heading to heaven. We need encouragement. We need direction. We need help to get to heaven. Elevating his thoughts and desires to that happiness and strengthening in him against all opposition in the way. Both that of the corruption within, which we all have. We all have. Against that and then the opposition that is from without with temptations and afflictions and all the things that come along. And then he says this, the heads of doctrine contained in this letter are many, but the main that are most insisted upon are these three, and these will be the things that we will see over and over and over again. And it's three simple words, write them down, and as you read through 1 Peter, just keep marking them when you see them. Faith. Obedience and patience. Faith, obedience, and patience. To establish them in believing, to direct them in doing, and to comfort them in suffering. Faith, obedience, and patience all given by God. Direction given by God, and we're going to see evidence of that this morning in the text that they would be established in their belief 
that they would be directed in their doing and then be comforted in their suffering. So I hope that over these next 16 weeks we'll become more equipped to live between these two incompatible worlds and that we will find our grounding as we consider these two seemingly incompatible truths. And I want you to know this, okay? I sense a great responsibility for us to be prepared in this way. I sense that responsibility. So we'll give attention to our faith in the Lord Jesus, our obedience as a mark of our faith, as lives are increasingly given to this direction, and our patience as we wait upon the Lord to deliver us from this present life. Now that we have the groundwork laid, let's just see what Peter has to say. You may want to write these words down. Just track along with them as we look at our text. Sovereignly chosen. Strangers. Scattered. Suffering. Secure. Sovereignly chosen. Strangers. Scattered. Suffering. Secure. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's owned by Christ, named by Christ, given authority by Christ, directed by Christ. Uh, even in Christ's death and in His resurrection, He is here operating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that had been promised to Him by Christ that was afforded Him by Christ's death, His departure, His leaving. We've heard all of that, and Peter is now writing. Who is he writing to? Who is he writing to? Well, notice what he says. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he gives uh, these, uh, the, these geographical, this geographical uh, picture here. It's important. Where present-day Turkey is today, uh, but there were various Roman provinces, uh, not in Rome, not in Jerusalem, uh, but uh, in 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 Rome, sending out people to do as they did in colonized areas. Uh, this was an area that had been colonized by Rome, and we see here that Peter answers the question as to who he is writing to. He said to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So, what are they? They are sovereignly chosen. We'll look at this in just a minute. They're strangers, aliens. Okay? Strangers and aliens who are scattered. And, and Peter is, uh, is helping us understand. He is implying here that in the course of this, there is hardship being faced uh, in the course of this. At various levels, of course. But turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4, chapter 3 and chapter 4, and we'll get a sense of this when we, when we study this. We'll get a sense of this. But in verse 13, notice what he says. Now there is harm to you if you are zealous for what is good. So there's this pointing toward what is good. And we'll, 
we'll, we'll get to this, but I want you to see this suffering. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Hope that is seen in the face of suffering. And we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that when we get there. But hope that is seen in the face of suffering, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. And he goes on and uses Christ as an example in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay? Now go over to verse 19 of chapter 4, because I, I believe if there is a, if there is a verse that kind of captures the, the theme of 1 Peter, it, it's probably this one. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. Okay, so we understand that they are they're sovereignly chosen. We see that they are uh, strangers and aliens. In other words, they're, 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 they're living between these two worlds and they, 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 they are there by God's election and His choosing. They're there. They're strangers there uh, by God's choosing. And we'll look at the purpose for which they are there in just a little bit. But they're there, and they're scattered. They're, they're everywhere. These aliens are, are, are everywhere. Uh, and in the midst of all of this, there is a suffering that they are contending with and that they are dealing with. And as he says in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, and we already know that it's God's will because He has sovereignly chosen them and elected them for this. Notice the order of those words, by the way, back up in, 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 verse, in verse 1. He says, to those who are not exiles, that's not what he says first, he, he qualifies everything by the elect exiles. That word, word, word order there is incredibly important. He's putting that on the front end of things. Putting that on the front end of things. Now we know that Peter was accustomed to suffering and persecution. Okay? So he's not, you know, he, he's not in the dark on this. All we have to do is go back and look at Acts chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 12. He's arrested, he's put in jail, uh, he's held before the council, and then he is in jail. And it seems in chapter 12 uh, that if he doesn't get out, uh, he's, he, he's getting ready to expire. Uh, and he is miraculously delivered from jail. And it's believed that by this time, though everyone doesn't agree on this, and I don't know, I wasn't there, I'm just telling you, it's believed by this time that Peter is likely in Rome. We do know that persecution is elevating. That if he's in Rome, he's in Rome during Nero's reign and rule and that persecution is picking up, and it's going to continue to get worse, and he is sending this word out to these elect, listen, these sovereignly chosen strangers who are scattered, who are suffering. That's, that's what he's doing. That's who he's writing to. 
uh, in studying this passage of Scripture, um, and I didn't plan this, by the way, whenever we looked at Exodus and we were talking about covenant and covenant people, and then we come to First Peter. I didn't have a clue. So God has sovereignly arranged all of this. But just the nature of the covenant language in Peter beginning with the word having been chosen. Election. Look back over in chapter 2, and we'll get there again. But notice in verse 9, he, he repeats this. He uses this phrase again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In other words, uh, there is this whole stream of covenant language uh, that is coming that we know from our study in Hebrews that there was this old covenant that we just looked at over the last few weeks. There's this old covenant, and, and as good as it was, it did not accomplish the transformation of people's hearts. That covenant was never intended to transform the heart of Israel. But when we get to Hebrews, we understand that the new covenant, the covenant that is sealed by the blood of Christ, is intended to transform the heart. But this whole idea of covenant language and being chosen, take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Uh, I want you to hear this, the, the, the sweet nature. I mean, it's just incredible as we hear it read. Beginning in verse 4, Ezekiel 16. Now I want you to hear, just listen to this. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. In other words, there is the birth of a child. This is the picture. There was a birth of a child. And all the things that would normally be done for the birth of a child to celebrate, to preserve, to, to, to be concerned about the well-being, to love. Um, Brian's family just went through this with the birth of a grandson. All of, those, all of those things of care, none of that was done. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Left on the floor to die. Okay, And God says, and I said, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. You became mine. And then I bathed you with water and I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. 
I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ear and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour and honey and oil and you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. Hear that language? That was, is covenant language. And then when we come to 1 Peter, the very first thing that we hear is, and God has chosen you. He chose Israel, not for salvation, but in His purpose and to show His steadfast love to the world. And you hear that language? And now we come to this and we hear it. It's interesting that the very first word in addressing His audience is that word, the elect. The elect. He's delivered in this word. It's the word wrapped up in covenant language. And just as God had chosen Israel, He had now chosen a new covenant people now here's here's the piece of it remember i said there are these two incompatible ideas and thoughts there is that of the joy that flows from that kind of love and care and tenderness and election over against the suffering and hardship and in israel's case their suffering and hardship came because of their sin in this new covenant people, it doesn't come because of their sin. It comes because they have been elected to suffer in a way just like Christ had been elected to suffer. For what? For the glory of God. For the expression of His glory and His joy. And that is what Peter is saying. That is showing the wonder of God's electing love. And they're strangers. Aliens and strangers. Not only are they lovingly chosen, but they are lovingly chosen aliens. Strangers. John Piper says to be elect is to be alienated. Think about that for a minute. That the election of God equals alienation. Alienation from what? Alienation from all that would seek to destroy God. All that would stand opposed to Him. In other words, they are strangers and aliens in a world. In a world that they belong by God's choosing, but they don't belong by their very nature and who they are. Turn to John chapter 17. You'll be familiar with this. Beginning in verse 14. You know, Jesus is praying His high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father. I've given them Your Word. 
and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Sound like aliens? Sound like strangers? Sure does. Just as I am not of the world, was Jesus an alien and a stranger? Sure was. Everybody looked at him like he had three heads. Until the glory of God was recognized in him and on him. And then we have confessions like Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But everybody else looked at him like he had three heads. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why keep them from the evil one? Because he is the one who blinds the eyes of those for the glory of God in Christ. They're not of this world, just as I'm not of the world. Then he says, sanctify them. And I want you to hold on to this. Sanctify them. This is going to come up again in just a minute. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So what do we see? Well, they're elect exiles. They're strangers. They're aliens. And notice that they're scattered. They're scattered. In other words, in this dispersion, they're scattered. Well, when was Israel scattered? Well, they were scattered when they were taken away to Babylon. They were scattered when they were taken away to Assyria. At every point of their sin, they are scattered. But here we don't see that, but we see a dispersion, a dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God because they are elect exiles, strangers. They're scattered. Deliberately scattered. Why? Why would God deliberately scatter His elect? Well, we'll look at it in detail when we get there, but turn over to chapter 2 and look at verse 9. We started there just a moment ago. Here's why. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's why they're scattered. It's not that God is just trying to be mean. Their suffering is due to the fact that they are there to proclaim the excellencies of God. The marvelous work of God. The marvelous work of His redemptive work. That's why they are scattered. That's why we are scattered. That's why we should scatter every week. That's why hopefully some of you when you grow up will not stay in Wilmington. But that you will move to places like northern Ghana. That you will move to places like Turkey. And that you will move to places like China. That you will leave from here and engage in work in some way professionally that will take you to places so that you will be scattered for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of God. That's why we love God supremely. 
We love others sacrificially and we live in the world distinctively. They were purposefully scattered. And then notice what else he says. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now I want you to hear the, the triune language here. We, we, we sang the doxology. Before we sang the doxology, we sang another Trinitarian song. Why? Uh, I shared this with one or two. I know I, know I shared it with Helene and I shared it with Dan. It seemed like I've shared it with someone. I've always known this, but I came just, I mean it was just like headlong into it over the last two weeks. You may not can explain the Trinity, and you can't. And you may not understand the triune relationship in the Godhead, and I don't. But you can't talk about God's redemptive work without speaking in Trinitarian language. You can't do it. You can't leave Christ out. You can't leave the Holy Spirit out. So anytime you're talking about what the Father does and the Son does and the Holy Spirit does, and you have to talk about that, to talk about God's redemptive work, you have to talk about it, to talk about salvation, and you leave a part of it out, you've left the Gospel out. And notice what happens here in this text according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he's not pointing back to, well, God just knew this. No, God has already sovereignly ordained and chosen. He knows this. Knows what? He knows how He is going to bring them to life. He is known before the foundation of the world. Turn over to Ephesians just for our reference this morning because we have already been there. And turn to chapter 1. Grace to you and peace in verse 2. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now here we're speaking specifically, and as we read in our assurance, we're speaking specifically about God's redemptive work in salvation. But that is part of God's redemptive work, and now Peter is writing about the whole of that experience, even as it pertains to their being scattered strangers for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. All of it speaks to the purpose of God and our purpose in Him. Notice what else it says. According to the foreknowledge of the Father, in other words, what has taken place in the past, in the sanctification of the Spirit. What is taking place in the present? When Peter is writing that, he is writing that about what is taking place in their life at that point. They are being sanctified. What was it that Jesus prayed? He prayed that they would be sanctified. And it is the Spirit of God that is working the works of righteousness in sanctifying these believers, presently, even at the time that Peter is writing. In other words, there's this ongoing work of God, of sanctification, that is pointedly toward their being scattered and their mission in the world. And then notice what he says, for what purpose, to what end? Sanctification of the Spirit in the present, to what end? 
for obedience to Jesus Christ. That was the purpose. For obedience to Jesus Christ. Ladies, y'all gather tomorrow night. You're working through 1 John. One of the things that continues to surface in the course of 1 John are the characteristics that are, that are directly associated with this sanctifying work, one of which is obedience. That's the reason why earlier we talked about direction. We're praying for that direction in our life. The Holy Spirit is working in us, in believers, toward that direction of obedience. Why? Because it is at the very heart of God's redemptive work and His plan for this world as His marvelous excellencies are proclaimed. The sanctifying work of the Spirit frees us. Hear that. It frees us more and more. I was thinking about it as I just dwell on it. The sanctifying work of the Spirit toward obedience to Christ is doing what? It's freeing us more and more from the distractions that are brought on by the hardships of suffering and persecution. In other words, it is here that joy, even in the midst of suffering, become a reality. That is the result of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just happen. I don't wake up in the midst of suffering just all of a sudden with a great big smile on my face and joyful. No, the Holy Spirit has been at work in my heart to purge me of those things, to guard me, to guide me, to direct me, and point me to see the overall glory of God in Christ so that now I can experience joy in the midst of suffering. Armando Valdez, he was a Cuban-American prisoner in Castro's prison from I think somewhere about 1960 to 1982, 22 years. Um, he was released after 22 years. Uh, French government and American congressmen got together to get him released. Anyway, he was a, a prolific writer. And, and I want you to hear this, this characterization of what he saw uh, in prison just this one day. And in the midst of that apocalyptic vision of the most dreadful and horrifying moments of my life, Imagine being in this setting now. In the midst of the gray, ashy dust, an orgy of beatings and blood, prisoners beaten to the ground, a man emerged. The skeletal figure of a man wasted by hunger with white hair, blazing blue eyes, and a heart overflowing with love raising his arms to the invisible heaven and pleading for mercy for his executioners. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And a burst of machine gun fire ripping open his breast. Joy even in the face of death. We saw that in Christ. We saw it in Stephen, and we'll see it in life, in our lives, in our lives. 
for those who are believers because we as well are elect exiles in the dispersion. By the foreknowledge of the Father, according to the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God that is within us, for obedience to Christ. For obedience to Christ. Notice that final statement, for the sprinkling with His blood. Sprinkle blood, and I again a little bit of study here. Sprinkled blood is used three times in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses did what when the covenant was being sealed? He sprinkled blood on the people. That was the sprinkling of blood on people. Okay? He sprinkled blood on the people. We read on a little bit farther that. Aaron and his sons had blood sprinkled upon them. Adam, right? Had blood sprinkled upon them when they were consecrated for the priestly ministry. And then there is a third. It is in the purification ceremony of a leper who has been cleansed and healed. We won't look at it for the sake of time, but Leviticus chapter 14, verses 6-7. through It seems that's what's taking place here is that what is being said is, is that we are not perfect, but the Spirit of God is sanctifying us for obedience to Christ, which is in conjunction with and necessary for God's redemptive work as we are being scattered. And what do we do? Well, we often fail. I don't say that lighthearted as if to pass it off, and that means nothing. But we often fail. And Peter was reminding them that the sprinkled blood, that hyssop branch, the sprinkled blood upon you is continuing to restore you. Continuing to restore you. We need that continued restoration. It's not that the blood is being spilled again. It's that the blood is being sprinkled upon us again and again and again and again and again just like David, when he cried out in Psalm 51, he said, wash me with hyssop. In other words, he was saying, sprinkle that blood on me again that I may be restored from the defilement of my sin. And then Peter concludes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What was he saying? Be blessed with the joy of the grace and mercy and peace of God that has come by way of His sovereign choosing. You say, Jimmy, what did all that mean? Peter was saying... Take comfort. Take comfort. God is at work to get you to heaven. But not yet. Not yet. We've got to be scattered. We have to live as strangers and aliens. Which means...
Today I'm feeling the joy of my salvation. By night's end, I may not be. But I am no less secure. Nor will you be if you've trusted Christ. So take comfort.